Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. This morning, we're going to come to a close of this study that we've been in uh, this summer. In second, uh, first and 2 Thessalonians, or sorry, in the spring. Uh, we'll get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in just a second. Uh, last weekend, uh, Christy and I were, um, got the chance to be in California to participate in a wedding. I have these two best friends that I've had all my life. The groom was one of the sons of the best friend. And the uh, uh, ring, not the ring bearer, the best man, sorry, the best man was the son of my other best friend. Uh, I got to be the officiant at this wedding. It was amazing. I got a couple pictures here of us being there with our friends, uh, Ivan Wild and his son Keegan, and then Brian Saunders and his son Holden. And of course, we went to In-N-Out Burger multiple times while we were in California. We had a blast. It was amazing. I've had these uh, two friends my whole life. Some of you have met them. They've both been here before and their families have been here before. We have experienced just about everything together. A birth and death, a celebration, sufferings, funerals, weddings. One of the things that we do when we get together is we play a little board game. We play this board game called a choir. Anyone ever heard of a choir before? You guys have. We've talked about this. Anyone else ever heard of a choir before? The goal of a choir is to acquire, right? The goal of it is to acquire. It's to just like get all everything that you can get. Um, we've been playing this board game for about 40 years and it's it's very much not about the board game. It's about the conversation that happens as we're sitting around the table. It's about the connection that we have with each other as we sit around this little board. We have solved a lot of problems as we've sat together. We've won a lot and we've talked about loss a lot as we have sat around this board. We've learned about the power of being fellow sold. We have confessed Around this board, we've prayed for one another and there has been healing that has happened around this board. We have learned, um, well, we're still learning actually, how to love and how to forgive and how to trust when things get broken. We're still learning as we sit around this board how to navigate deep grief and sorrow and suffering and loss and celebration and together, sitting around this board, we encourage one another to live the life that God has called us to live, to live into the story that God has authored for us. In fact, we got up early last Monday morning so we could play one last game before we had to head to the airport. Uh, most of the time, this won't surprise any of you. Most of the time when we play this game, I come in last place. Uh, definitely. I get distracted or I make a dumb decision, or I play the wrong piece, or I overspend, or I underinvest. But last Monday, last Monday morning, I got just the right pieces at just the right time. Every decision that I made was pure gold. My friend Ivan, whom some of you have met, is super competitive. He's the most competitive person I know. And he is the most ruthless game board player I have ever met. And he has beaten me so bad over the years. In fact, he was riding a three-game winning streak. But on Monday morning, the heavens opened. And the fog lifted. 
and relentlessly and inextricably, piece by piece, dollar by dollar, I drove him off the board. (laughs) Slowly and with great cunning and skill, I exposed the soft underbelly of my friend's vulnerability. I took everything he had. I destroyed him financially and psychologically. I beat him so bad he had to give me his last dollar. He quit in utter defeat. It was the greatest day of my life. I was so excited, I even had to call Christy to come into the kitchen. I made her look at the board so she could witness my total and utter domination. And then my other friend Brian said, well, the game is over. And now it all goes back in the box. I didn't want it to go back in the box. I I wanted to take a picture. I wanted to frame the board, maybe get a plaque with all of our scores from top to bottom. Maybe a t-shirt, something. And as we were cleaning up, we talked a little bit about a truth that we all sort of have rallied around over the years. Life is not a game to be won or a problem to be solved, but a love story to be lived. The people of Thessalonica were living a redemption story, but it did not preclude them from enemies from suffering and opposition. And as Paul writes this closing chapter of this love letter, he's encouraging them in the middle of their story. We'll pick it up at the very beginning of the chapter. Verse 1 and 2 says this. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. You know, Paul uh, prays a lot. This time, he doesn't begin with a prayer for the people of Thessalonica. This time, he asks them to pray for him. Uh, he He asks them to pray that the message of the Lord would spread rapidly and be honored. And he asked them to pray that they may be delivered from wicked and evil people. He says, not only are the Thessalonians being persecuted, we're being persecuted too, so pray for us, he says. I counted eight times in Paul's letters where he asks for prayer. And most of the time, he's not really asking for prayer. He's telling the church to pray for them. He's telling the church to pray for him. He's, in this this text, he's not just asking, he's telling, pray for us, pray for us. And it made me think about how often I ask for prayer. And so I just wanted to ask you, when was the last time you asked someone to pray for you? Like really pray for you. Or like Paul, when was the last time you just told someone, just pray for me, man, pray for me. Because that's what Paul's doing. Hey, pray for me, he's saying. In the midst of this, verse three, Paul reminds the Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica, and he reminds you and I that the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. I love how Paul reminds the church that he's faithful. Yes, there's evil and wicked people, but God is faithful. From the beginning 
to the end of this great love story, God's faithfulness is proclaimed. To Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse six, God says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God is faithful. And then at the end of this great love story, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus is given the name faithful. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he, with justice, he judges and wages war. I don't know where you are in your story. I'm right in the middle of my story. I'm not sure what tomorrow looks like. I don't think any of us do, but no matter how hard things get, no matter how big the problem is, no matter how bad life seems, our God is faithful. And because his mercies are new every morning, we can sing, great is thy faithfulness. And then he adds this word of encouragement. He says, God will strengthen you and he will protect you from the evil one. Paul's just reminding the church what Jesus had already taught. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had taught his followers how to live and how to love. And one of the things that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount was how to pray. Some of you know this. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, this is Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, you say, deliver us from, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus goes on to say that the thief, the evil one, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I don't know how the evil one comes your way. I think the evil one works slowly. And I think he works subtly. He typically works in a whisper. And most times, in my experience, most times the whisper comes in two forms. It comes by the way of doubt and it comes in accusation. Doubt and accusation. Scripture calls the evil one the accuser. We can see both. Uh, on display when we first meet the evil one in the first couple pages of this great love story. Genesis chapter three, uh, verses one, and then in verse five, this is how the evil one is introduced. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's just a little bit of doubt. Did God really say that? Are you sure you heard right? And then here, for God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The serpent is sowing seeds of doubt and he's sowing seeds of accusation. Did God really say? Did God really say? Because God knows. It's as, if God, it's as if the evil one is saying to Eve, hey, God's holding out on you. There's a better way. He's holding out on you just subtly speaking seeds, planting seeds of doubt. 
He's saying, hey, this relationship that you think you have with him, you don't really have with him. He doesn't really trust you because if he did trust you, he'd tell, did God really say? Because God knows and he knows that if this happens, then you'll be like him. The evil one's desire is to divide. And I don't know anything more powerfully that divides than doubt and accusation. Turn brother against brother, family against family. Is there anything more hurtful or damaging? I'm not sure how the enemy attacks you. Although I know from scripture that the enemy is after each one of us. Peter says these words, your enemy, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. My son-in-law and I were talking about this and we were talking about how in my story from the first chapter of my story to the chapter that I'm currently living the evil one has come after me in two ways to steal kill and destroy my love for my family and to steal kill and destroy my love for the local church it's a real pain in my story how about you how about your story How does the evil one come after you? Where does he whisper doubt? Where does he whisper accusation? A couple more things about this. I think it's super important to remember that Satan does not have ultimate power. He does not have the same power that Jesus has. Not even close. Dan Wilt reminds us that the evil one is not equal to Jesus, not in terms of power or knowledge or presence. The evil one is finite and limited. He cannot be in all places at one time. He is powerful, but he's no match for Christ. He's a creature and Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-creating, all-holy God. Jesus is completely faithful, relentlessly merciful, utterly good. Jesus is God. Jesus dwells in the triune community who was and is and who always will be love. Jesus is the ruler who upholds righteousness and justice, the deliverer who takes up the cause of the widow and the orphan, the sojourner, the captive, and the poor. And Jesus is the savior who has already won the war on our behalf. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. You and I will undoubtedly face seasons in our story in which it feels like the enemy is winning. But it is essential to remember that he cannot win. It may feel that way. It feels that way in my story many times. But our reality is that Jesus has already won the war. And because of that, you can stand firm knowing that Jesus is able to guard you and strengthen you and protect you. Nothing... Not even Satan can separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Verse four and five say this, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things that we command. 
May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Okay, Paul's shifting now. Now he's praying again. Now he's praying for the church again. He's already asked them to pray for him. Now he's gonna pray for them. He asks, he prays that God would give them a greater appreciation of his love and he prays for them to persevere. This little prayer, it's a lot like a prayer that David prayed over the people of Israel. 1 Chronicles 29, 18. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. I love that prayer. Eight times, Paul asks for prayer. But 39 times in Paul's letter, we, letters, we find him praying for the church. 39 times he prays for the church. We pray one of the prayers that Paul prays around here all the time. My wife prayed it a couple of weeks ago from Ephesians chapter three, verse 17 through 19. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Life is not a game to be won or a problem to be solved, but a love story to be lived. Next couple of verses, uh, verse six through verse 13, there's a lot going on here, but let's read this section. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of what, never tire of doing what is good. Not exactly sure why some of these followers of Jesus have quit their jobs. Uh, the guys from the Bible Project suggested that they felt that maybe, maybe they felt like the Lord's return was imminent, that at any time the Lord would return. So we don't need to worry about work or we don't need to worry about what we're gonna eat. And so they just you know, quit, the, quit, quit, quit their jobs. But nonetheless, Paul is not happy about this. Could you hear all of that in this passage? He's not happy about it at all. For Paul, our work is an expression of love. Our work strengthens the community. Regardless of the kind of work that you do, your work matters. I read earlier this week that 90% of what we do every day is a response to what someone else has done. 90% of what we do is a response to what somebody else is doing, or maybe it's a response to sin or something else like that. But when we work, our 10%, when we contribute, when we initiate, when we bring life, we bring life and light and love into the world. That's what we get to do. Paul's theology of work 
allows us, encourages us to bring beauty into the world. I think about teachers and coaches and first responders like police officers and nurses and farmers and the girl who puts a smile on our face every time we go to Waffle House, Caleb. I believe our theology of work lies in the creative character of God. One way that we can infuse life into this world is by the way we work. Verse 14 says, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Don't associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Any of you guys ever heard of a phrase called church discipline? Raise your hand if you've heard of that phrase. Church discipline, it's kind of a strong phrase. There are, I think that's what Paul's talking about here. There are two forms of church discipline. There's formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline is uh, like these guys that are going to Guatemala or our team that went to Peru or in Peru. Formative discipline is this team taking time together, spending time together, learning and growing together, preparing together, praying together. There's a discipline that comes along with this team in preparation for what they're going to experience together and what they're going to experience on the field. So that's, if you will, that's formative discipline. The other discipline is called corrective discipline, and corrective discipline addresses a problem, or maybe it identifies a danger And then there's a process of reconciliation that's put into place in the church. The goal of this kind of discipline is not the removal of someone from the faith family or the church, but ultimately the goal is reconciliation and restoration within the local body of Christ. It takes a whole lot of work. If you've ever been involved in church discipline, it takes a whole lot of humility and it takes a whole lot of love, both to enact church discipline and to be the recipient of it. I think that's what Paul's referencing here. Well, he's going to end this letter with some really encouraging words. Check out verse 16, 17, and 18. This is how he ends the letter. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with you all. Verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. And then verse 18, again, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 16 is probably one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord be with you. Did I encourage you? Yeah. How about we do this? Can we just speak it over one another real quick? Like, I know you guys don't love it when we do stuff like this, or some of you don't love it, especially you introverts, but could we just, or at least look at each other and kind of say it in our minds, you know, to one another? Could we just speak this? Could you just speak this over the person next to you? Go ahead. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord be with you all. Man. Did everybody do it? Is that encouraging? It's encouraging to me. If it's not encouraging, we can go back to the church discipline thing. (laughs) I'm not sure where you are in your story. Not sure how the evil one is at work in your story. 
but be reminded that the Lord of peace, may he give you peace at all times and in every way and be reminded that the Lord is with you. The number one promise in the Bible, the most repeated phrase in the Bible is that truth. The Lord is with you. I am with you. It says over and over and over again, the Lord be with all of you, it says in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The most repeated promise in the Bible, I will be with you. Did you notice that this letter doesn't end with the word goodbye? Did you guys notice that? Goodbye. I didn't notice that um, until I was reading through it. And then I started reading. Did you know that the Bible, that word goodbye doesn't even exist in the Bible? It's never used. In fact, um, our English word goodbye, it comes from a phrase that's in the Bible. But goodbye, that word is not there. The phrase comes from this, this text, God be with you. May God be with you. I don't know if you can use your imagination here for a second with me. Can you hear the old English God be with ye, God be with ye, God be with you, goodbye, God be with ye. Paul says, may the Lord of peace himself give you all peace, give you peace at all times, and in every way the Lord be with you all. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If God is with you, does anything else really matter? Not the unseen chapters in your story, not even the chapters that include suffering or death, they do matter. But what matters most is that God is with us. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he didn't say goodbye. Before he ascended to heaven, he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, Jesus says. I will be with you even to the ends of the earth, to the very ends of the age, I will always be with you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. To the church in Thessalonica and to you and me, we are reminded that there simply is no situation in which Jesus will not be present. Life is not a game to be won or a problem to be solved, but a love story to be lived. Paul's phrase here at the end, this is a prayer. It's a heartfelt wish. It's an invocation or a benediction. I can hear Paul say, while I can't be with you, may God be with you. And the same is true for you and me. One day, Jesus will return. One day, Jesus will redeem all things because our stories fit in the context of a much larger story, a much larger love story, one that has a cross in the middle and a king at the end. Verse 18 in the old King James version of the Bible puts it this way, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. The word goodbye is not in the Bible, but the word amen is there. 
It's an Aramaic word. Amen is an Aramaic word. We don't even have an English word for it. So we just adopted the Aramaic word. That's Aramaic. Amen. And it means, may it be so. May it be so. Let it be done. May it be so. Did you know that amen is the very last word of this letter and the very last word in the Bible? Very last word of God's great love story is amen. Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray together. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, right here and right now, and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. And may the God of all grace himself give you grace at all times including right here and right now and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.